if you assume that we're going to have a deep decarbonization, that means that a lot of sort of today's incumbent assets and structures are possibly very much at risk. Welcome to the final episode of season two of The Net Zero Life. I'll share more on that at the end of the episode, but for those of you who have been with us since episode one, thanks for listening. And for those who are joining for the first time, I'm your host, Nathan Svee, and I'm working to share the lessons and philosophies from leaders working in climate so you can live a sustainable life that brings the world closer to net zero emissions. I'm itching to get into today's interview, so I won't take too much time on a season two wrap up. We'll do another episode for that after the season is over. It's been incredible to see how the show has grown since we launched earlier in this year, and even more in season two. Thanks to every person who listened, shared, and rated this project. Because of your support, we're the number one podcast when searching Net Zero on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Today on the show, the last episode of season two, I'm speaking with Nat Bullard, Chief Content Officer of Bloomberg New Energy Finance, or Bloomberg NEF. Nat currently lives in Washington, D.C., and before that, he's been all over the globe, with stops in Hong Kong, San Francisco, New York, Bologna, Cairo, Cambridge, Mass., and Decatur, Georgia. Bloomberg NEF is a research group within Bloomberg LP. Their analytical services assess the tools, business models, and pathways for achieving a deep decarbonization of the global economy by mid-century. The group covers power, transportation, food and agriculture, the built environment, and the enabling technologies linking them together. Nat is a leading thinker in the global transition to a net-zero world. I use his work to help research this show, and you can access it as well by subscribing to his weekly Bloomberg Green column, Sparklines. You'll join C-suite executives, board members, and consultants in the rapidly growing community of people who benefit from Bloomberg Neff's insights. During the interview, Nat and I discuss art as a lens to understand climate and innovation. We talk about his journey into the world of climate, what he reads to inform his opinions, and his process for turning ideas into insights. We discuss the importance of accuracy in Bloomberg's predictions, and if the world is decarbonizing fast enough to reach net zero emissions in time to prevent the worst impacts of climate change. Before we jump into the episode, a quick message from Climate People our partner for season two, and my favorite climate-focused recruiting agency. Climate People is an incredible recruiting agency, working to connect mission-driven talent with companies fighting climate change. Whether you're a candidate looking to build software that helps sequester carbon, or founder looking to hire engineers, Climate People can take care of your talent acquisition needs so you can focus on bringing the world closer to net zero emissions. (sighs) Well, to say I'm incredibly excited to bring this episode to your ears is a complete understatement. Nat is one of the top thinkers around net zero topics like the transition to clean energy, the electrification of transport, climate technology, and climate finance. We have a wide-ranging discussion around Net Zero, and we just touched the surface. One note before we jump in. This conversation was recorded before the United Nations 2021 Conference of the Parties, or COP, and this year, COP26. If you've never heard of that before, consider the World Cup of Climate Change Conferences. It's a big deal. So, without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Nat Bullard, Chief Content Officer of Bloomberg NEF. Nat, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. To be honest, there are so many places I want to start. The questions that I've been writing and researching, they stem from the simple, do you think we're going to get to net zero by 2050, uh, if ever? And if so, what temperature increase to like the more open ended, what net zero related moral quandaries are are you chewing on right now? Mm -hmm. But if it's okay, I'd love to start somewhere else, which is your background both in art and in your LinkedIn profile. Um, So your banner on LinkedIn features a a piece by Sid Mead. Yes, uh, you know, yeah. good catch. 
um, the artist who illustrates the future, which I feel is so perfect, right? Because you're, and then just for people who don't know, Sid Mead is the visual artist behind Blade Runner and Tron and Star Trek and others. And you're, you know, so you have a background in art, you think about the future. And so maybe how has art influenced your way of thinking about life and the universe? And then how do you apply those frameworks to tackling the problem of climate change? Thank you. That's awesome. I'm really glad you caught that. Not only that it said me, but I'm, I'm going to ask you a question. Do you know which series that's from? I want to say it's Blade Runner, but I'm not sure. Even better. That is a piece of straight up corporate futurism. That is called the Portfolio of Probabilities from the late 1960s. And it was done for U.S. Steel. Mm. So this was the steel industry hiring an artist to essentially give a steel-enabled set of visions of the future. It's really a fantastic thing. I've been trying for ages to see if I can acquire some version of it that's in decent condition and not like ruinously expensive. And you'll not be surprised to know that that's impossible to do. So uh, I think actually we, we should use Sid Mead as a great lens here. Sid Mead was a, a visual designer. He uh, spent a great deal of time designing automobiles and things like that, which is inherently an exercise in the future and thinking about what could be, uh, not just what is or what might be in the next sort of business planning cycle. And tasked with looking deep into the future, he, he sort of created a visual language that I think influences a lot of how we think about the future. And this particular set of things is something that I think is actually a useful lens for today, which is without sounding cheesy about it, it is essentially like a techno-optimistic view of the future. So it's a view that is informed by abundance more than scarcity. If, if, I, if I look at it and read it, um, it's one that is full of new things rather than just old things. So it's uh, about doing the same things differently and doing new things in new ways as well. And how does that relate to, to my own work? Well, I went through, I, I studied academic art history. So I'm not a practitioner uh, of any means, really. Uh, I, I studied that because as an undergraduate, I just found that deeply, deeply fascinating as look a series of lenses that people have on the world. Um, everything from how people describe their own reality to how they envision things being different, how they envision realms of the divine, how they envision dreams or imagination, how they envision a concept like victory or love or something like that. But importantly within that, at least at the time that I was studying it, the kind of fundamentals for getting acquainted with this world was something that was called formal analysis, a very rigorous and structured way of looking at what was actually there. So looking at what tools, techniques, methods an artist might have used to create this vision that was in front of us, um, what materials were used and in what ways, what had been well-preserved over time, what had been, if you get more technical into it, what tools and techniques have been durable over the centuries and which ones have been rather fleeting, you know, which ones were experiments that didn't work and which ones were things that have proven to be very durable over time. And I actually found that plus my next job when I, well, my immediate first job out of college, which is working as a teacher to be very informative about kind of continually looking closely at where we actually are, but also 
how to frame complex ideas uh, in ways that are relatable and approachable. And oftentimes those are used almost like in a pejorative sense. You don't want, you know, making something too relatable is somehow dumbing it down or overly simplifying it. But I don't think that that's actually true. I think that that's actually an important part of getting people to a shared understanding of where we are. Now, how that relates to what I do now is uh, my, my, my next phase after the, 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 art, the art days in the art world, which included working in the gallery business in New York for a few years, was going to graduate school and studying international relations and, and, and international economics and energy economics. Um, I had become sort of interested in both diplomacy and international business um, and studying them formally there, I found very helpful because at that time, which was the mid-aughts, so 2004 to 2006, we were just at the beginnings of a real and eventually durable policy network for doing things related to climate change through energy. At that time, it was wind, solar, carbon markets, bioenergy, which is you know, mostly biofuels. And what I found was that um, having graduated with an academic background in that, um, I was one of the few people at the time who had actually studied that in, in any kind of sort of um, concerted way that wasn't either purely scientific or purely policy. Um, it was really quite nascent at that time. And, and so coming into a world where, where I, I saw things as sort of an economic lens, uh, a, a, a national policy, national strategy lens, um, and also one that as you looked at it from business opportunity was fundamentally about changing big incumbent systems. I found, I found weirdly that it became very useful when I got into the work of that to look back to my art days in a couple of ways. The first was, this is very, very prosaic for 2021, but was um, ability to talk on the phone an awful lot. Um, <laughs> I, I had begun, uh, you know, I'd been in my art business days taking the most random of phone calls from people oh all the gosh. time, um, having to sort of, you know, explain to them what they were looking at or, or help uh, walk through some complicated conceptual thing. And it also made me not afraid of being on the phone. And that was actually very useful in the days of trying to track down a policy or implementation or something like that. But the other was to sort of <clears throat> seek to demystify complex ideas for other very relevant stakeholders. So an instance of that would be, how do you explain the working mechanisms of uh, so a photovoltaic solar without sounding like too much like an electrical engineer or a physicist when you're talking to a banker? How do you explain the similarities or differences in the, the variability of output or the nature of availability of a technology uh, when dealing simultaneously with uh, site engineers on one side and local policymakers on another. Um, it, it was very much an effort of sort of framing. I don't really want to say narrative because I think the, the, the policy and technology dictate the narrative, but framing it was an extremely important part of what I did. And, and again, it was sort of looking backwards to <clears throat> demystifying bits of jargon uh, and industry inside speak um, for the sake of getting a better shared understanding of what was happening in those early years of, of, of what hopefully ends up being a pretty thorough, deep, 
deep decarbonization of, of what we do right now. Wow. You set me up for success. So first of all, I say thank good. you. Um, points <laughs> that I want to come back to is like, sure. you know, can information be too relatable? Um, and I, I already have a question for that. Um, but you talked about narrative, which is so perfect because I, I'm really curious how you think about narrative and then also like, uh, and the story of risk in your work, both in your, um, your work in Sparklines and your work in your insights for Bloomberg Neff. Um, and then, you know, and telling that story and how you do it. Um, and then if that story, if that, that medium is changing. So let me see if I can, if I can break this up. So risk, you mean personal risk taking in terms of what you're doing, or do you mean like, like, like stakeholder risk? Like yes. what, what am I, okay. Yeah. Stakeholder risk. Although okay. um, personal risk from a decision maker too is really interesting as well. Right. Uh, so, so state the, the stakeholder risks are, are twofold. You're sort of constantly negotiating the risks that you have to manage um, if you're thinking about making a big change in what, if you strip out some variables, is a perfectly functional system today. You know, if we didn't have massive global negative externalities in the energy, food, water, transport systems that we have today, we would probably be okay with them. You know, we would probably be quite fine with what they are uh, and how they work. But there are fundamental things with them that we need to change or they will change us fundamentally. We could argue that they already are. And so there's a sort of negotiation within that between what what things as a stakeholder you need to be aware of and you need to consider. And I would say that you know, you're, you're, there, you're, there, there are two things that are sort of generally viewed as opposed to each other, sort of risk and opportunity. Um, but then there's also stasis and dynamism or, you know, being static and changing that you have to consider. And I think one of the most important things as you look into a deep decarbonization is wondering how, which, what thing is durable? Like what, what's the durable um, operating condition for your business right now? And I think this is the biggest thing that has been changing and the thing that I'm sort of constantly working on instead of a fixed idea of mine that I constantly iterate, which is that we don't really have a business usual framework, I think, anymore in a climate, in a climate sense. It's been changing. It will continue to change, both uh, as it continues to get worse and hopefully as it, can, as it eventually becomes better. And so if you have to just sort of discard stasis as your operating condition, you need to now think about it being dynamic. And that should change one's framework for thinking about what is risky and what is uh, opportunistic and things like that. So if you assume that we're going to have a deep decarbonization, that means that a lot of sort of today's incumbent assets and structures are possibly very much at risk. That's part one. So if this, then that. What becomes less risky? Well, it's probably investing along and helping to build the decarbonizing pathway. This is a big change for people because it's doing something new and doing something new is generally encoded as, as being risky, as opposed to in, in this framework, being encoded as actually being responsive to risk or um, opportunistic, like looking to help build what's coming next. The other thing I think to consider is 
where value is going to be captured. You know, like, like, is there going to be value captured from sort of going into a phrase that I've seen pop up more and more as I read financial disclosures and company decarbonization plans, runoff mode. Are we going to find more value in running off existing funds, existing structures, existing assets? So you basically operate them for cash rather than for some kind of um, upside gain, uh, and you eventually get ready to get rid of them? Or are you more operating along a mode of building new things and capturing new values? So create or creating value would be a better way of saying it. Are you creating value from something new rather than extracting value from something incumbent? And this is, you know, th this is actually, it does work as a framework because it's pretty well established in, in, the, in the worlds of, of investment. You know, there, are, there are industries that have healthy cash flow, but little potential growth, and they occupy sort of one domain. And then there are industries and assets that, are, that have little cash flow, but potentially enormous growth uh, and total addressable markets that we might not even really yet understand on the other side. And so you and, and for companies, you need to negotiate where you sit within them. So if you're a startup, I think it's relatively easy. You're probably going to be uh, risk on, opportunistic, risk on in one sense, you know, not risk on from a climate sense. But you're going to be going for the things where there's value to be created, not just extracted. Um, but if you are in the if you're on the other side of the ledger, you have to make a decision internally first what you think is right. But you also and this is, this is where uh, policy and global markets and investor sentiment comes in. You may have some of that decision-making forced upon you. I mean, that's certainly uh, what we're seeing in terms of where capital markets are looking and going today, is that they, they're, they're sort of preferencing at the large scale, insofar as possible, um, the runoff modes for a lot of different types of assets and some particular types of market structures. And growth imputed to and therefore uh, invested in for a lot of decarbonization related activity, namely in transportation and, and electricity. I think a question for people who aren't as in depth uh, in the space as you are is, is really simple, which is, are people going fast enough or are we as a world going fast enough? And I tie it back to kind of this, you talked about stasis for dynamicism. Mm -hmm. I'm going to mess up that word. You know, equilibrium is good in a lot of ways, right? We want it in our body. We want it in our governments. At the same time, there's this desire, especially on the activism and the youth level to go faster and go faster and go faster. And so from your perspective, you know, are we there? So fast enough, the, the thing is fast enough for what? Yeah. Um, you, you, you know, the, the, the atmospheric science of this is such that if we stopped emitting instantly, you know, if we had, if we were simply enraptured and just disappeared, um, the carbon cycle takes a while <laughs> to actually, uh, to actually re-equilibrate to some kind of pre-industrial norm. That to my mind is sort of like out of the door. Um, are we going fast enough to hit a 1.5 degrees C world, uh, 1.5 degrees above, you know, sort of pre-industrial level of temperature? Probably not. That, that, that is the thing that is actually requires incredibly steep activity. And every year that we persist on our current path makes it that much harder uh, to do something new. Are we, are we by though the same token on one of these 
really dire, you know, as recently as a decade ago, sort of scenarios that people ran wherein we we ended up with four to six degrees of, of warming. I think those are actually extremely unlikely. And in fact, I find them actually not particularly instructive because they require they require uh, interventions not found in evidence. They require things that have not worked or been done before to create emissions being done at scales that would be just astonishing. So, you know, they're the kind of thing that if you were to run a Monte Carlo simulation, I suppose you could have in there, but they're not anything found in evidence of the way that business, society, uh, anything is working right now. So I think actually that we're this this is a bit of a a bit of a potentially unsatisfying answer but I don't think that we're fast enough to hit the 1.5 degree scenario you know where we are at the moment and that's something very unusual comes out of cop plus we commit to it but we're also not on these trajectories that people described as you know as recently as a couple of years ago as the really doomsday ones at the same time I think that there's an increasing awareness that change is our condition right now. And that like the, the things that are happening atmospherically that are impacting people's daily lives right now are already very dire and very challenging at barely above one degree centigrade of warming. So I think, but, but I think while that's really not good, uh, it does actually give people a framework in which to think that like, if more of this is going to happen to a greater degree, perhaps we want to do something to change it. I don't think it's particularly abstract anymore. At least for most people our age, it's not abstract. It's also, and importantly, the younger you are, the more the condition that you know, your, your expectation is of continued change in, in generally in one direction. Hmm. Wow, uh, interesting thought. And in, in that you're saying not just for like our approach to climate action, but just to the universe. Yes, I mean, like, like we're okay. So we're not in this. In in one sense, our physical world is not as dynamic as say my. Uh, I think often about this. My grandfather. My grandfather told me about seeing the Armistice Day parade. So at the end of of the First World War, uh, he lived. He, he was born at a time when electricity the radio, uh, running water, city gas already existed. Um, Morse code and tele- the early telecommunications existed. Um, he was he was born at the time of the automobile barely existed, but he lived through the motorization of the world, through commercial aircraft, through television, through atomic weapons, uh, well into the internet. I mean, he sent me emails in, in, the, in the 2000s. Um, his father was actually born at a time when he went from basically no, the very, very, very beginnings of rail access through telecommunications, electricity, city water, city gas, all of that other stuff, all the way up through atomic weapons. A lot of where we are right now is recognizable to us as children, but also to perhaps our parents as children. Like, What's changing is happening in less visible ways, but very, very profound ways. But I think for people who are young, who are our age and younger, that world is one that they fully inhabit, that one of 
of more at, literally atmospheric change as being the kind of thing that they expect to see more of, you know, what, what they expect to see changing uh, and happening to a greater degree. I also think, or maybe I'm being overly hopeful, is that there's an increasing appreciation that we can, we not, not just that we should tackle these very, very difficult problems, but that we can. Like they're a combination of capability and imperative coming together in ways that I find extremely heartening when I think about real deep decarbonization. So the stuff that I cut my teeth on, you know, the, the, the wind and solar of the world, and to an extent, electrified transport uh, and, and batteries are, they're not solved, but they're solvable to, to a high degree to deeply decarbonize those sectors. Um, it's the other sectors that, that you know, run into chemistry and physics problems that I think historically have been like, well, we're never going to get away from using cement. We're never going to stop burning kerosene as our aeroturbine aviation fuel. We're never going to decarbonize marine, you know, long distance marine shipping. And it's extraordinarily helpful, I think, these days that almost nobody who's sincere about it really says that anymore. Like this is actually now put into the realm of, as I said, like both possible and imperative. And that's, that's really, really good. <laughs> and it's not just people that are, you know, that are, that are young that see that as like, it has to happen, but there's a sense now that, that it, it can and should, and to a large degree, let's hope will happen as well. I know a bunch of companies just um, committed to 2040 zero carbon fuels and their marine shipping. Um, but let's talk about what you cut your teeth on um, sure. and, and, and really how you cut your teeth on it. Um, I think giving a little bit of background in terms of the insights you give um, would be helpful here. But what I'm most curious is what do you read or how do you build the ideas in your head for those insights that you deliver um, to help like develop net zero strategies or these insights to these big decision makers? It's, it's a great question. So I'll give the I'll give the quick primer on what what most people who are listening are probably familiar with my work. So seven years ago, almost exactly, uh, actually more than seven years, goodness, about seven and a half years ago, my boss sat me down after an event we had in New York. He's like, "What do you want to do?" And I said, "Well, I would like to do something for our clients who don't read our research." He's like, "Well, if they're clients, they read our research." I was like, "You know what I mean?" Like. The chairperson of the board does not read our research. They don't have time for a 40-page PDF. They don't go through data. You know, the, uh, the managing director of XYZ, you know, they mostly read email. And so what I would like to do is I want to write an email to people. He's like, okay. It's like, I want to write an email to people and I want it to arrive back in the day. I want it to arrive on Saturdays. He's like, that's bold. I was like, I know, but let's give it a shot. Let's, let's see if people won't, you know, small group, couple of hundred uh, executives in energy transition activity won't read an email from me on the weekend. And he's like, well, what do you want to talk about? I was like, well, I want to get convey a sense of first things that people might have missed. It's very important in a recap fashion. But secondly, things that they may not have thought of yet as either happening or possible. So looking at the first of a kind something, or if there's a big announcement, trying to get us a way to think about it. And he's like, okay, great. So we ran off and did that. Um, it's since grown somewhat since that time, uh, multiple orders of magnitude and digits behind it. From 100 to 160,000, maybe? Not quite. It's like 170 something, <laughs> but, but who's counting? Um, 
and and it's published under under the, the aegis of a bigger institution. So of, of Bloomberg Green now and, and Climate, our our uh, Green Daily that we publish. So not just me, but somebody else writing every week. And it's still I'm still trying to embody this. How should I think about something that has just happened? You know, something that is important, whether it's, you know, very emergent or it's long term. Um, what do I not, what do I, the reader, maybe not know about this? Like, what is that, what is the unknown information or the little understood information behind it? And three, how should I think about it? Like, how do I think about when this does that? Now, the process, um, I get asked this question a lot internally from colleagues who ask, who are newer or maybe not as familiar with my work. And they say, well, they first want to know, how long does it take to write like this? How long does it take to write seven or 800 words a week? I'm that like, is well, such an American question. Sorry to interrupt, <laughs> but I just feel like it's so like, how do I do this in the least amount of time and the most amount of impact? No, it's not. It, it's not that. It's more a cognitive. It's actually, you, you'll see from my answer that it's actually more of a cognitive thing. Because most, most colleagues of mine spend time deeply enmeshed in one particular thing, sometimes for months. Hmm. So they're like, how do you do, you know, how do you hit this cycle, right? And I said, well, I was like, it takes, you know, five, six hours plus 15 years. Like it, take, it takes um, a sort of internal algorithmic understanding of, oh, that's new or that's not new, or that's new, small, but new in an important way or that's big and old, but there's something different about it now that we should look at. And also I think having a body of kind of like recurring themes that I return to. So capital expenditure allocations is, is one of those things I'm always fascinated by. The speed with which uh, any new um, announcement or initiative is growing, you know, thing, things that, that either achieve velocity or do not. Um, interoperability of new technologies. Like, do they have the opportunity potentially to trend towards being, you know, if not general purpose technology writ large, then general purpose within decarbonization. So those are those are the sorts of things that I'm trying constantly to figure out for my public audience. And frankly, I'm doing the same, I think, for the client audience, the one that's the one that's behind the paywall. In, in similar ways, um, but in a bit more of an interrogative fashion. So it's about discussion. It's about sort of feeling out what, what companies are most interested in, what they're asking questions about. Um, if I'm doing my job right, I, I listen as much as possible to what people are asking about and what they're interested in. Um, and then, and then, of course, there's there's elements of just sort of running the you know helping to run the business. So you know, uh, uh, Bloomberg NEF is a business within Bloomberg. It, it's reasonable size these days. It's still growing at a pretty rapid rate. And you know, there there are things that I'm not deeply deeply into, such as I, I don't do a huge amount of HR planning, but things like strategy on what we should cover and how we should cover it and how we talk about it. Uh, internally, you know, for internal kind of client purposes within the rest of Bloomberg, externally uh, is all is all very important. I'm I'm wondering if you're interested in being the chief content officer of the Net Zero Life. Um, but more seriously, <laughs> you don't uh, need one. It's that's you. Nathan. Yeah, you don't you don't you don't, you don't well, need one. You already. Hopefully, we're hopefully I'm interesting. Um, but. But so then peeling back that, I mean, how do you think what to talk about? And and um, if I can poke a little bit um, sure. deeper here, like what do you what do you read and what inspires you uh, when you're like going for a walk and you're like, oh, that's a nugget. That's an idea. 
I read, so I read an awful lot of, I read a lot of Twitter. I'm very, I, I, I don't know that I would necessarily wish Twitter upon people, um, but I, I encountered it at a particular time and in a really bounded way. I have, you know, I keep my number of people that I follow under a thousand. It's been, you know, there is some flex in it. I'm pretty rigorous about flushing it for people who are no longer, you know, no longer using it. But I, I, I follow a lot of people at the sort of, um, the, the, the sharp end of policy making and technology in particular to see what they're talking about and are interested in. Um, I read a lot of as many as I can uh, presentations, earnings calls, things that come from companies or, or bits of research. I read insofar as I can academic research as well often to find what from that might have a lesson that's relevant to kind of amplify into, into a corporate audience, sort of bridging, bridging cognitive or informational divides between, between these different realms. And you sort of hinted at it, but like you do find that a lot of sort of inspiration comes where you're taking a hike or you're walking. Um, my daughter is now six and she she has as all six year olds do in, uh, just a fascinating interrogation uh, capability that is really interesting. So she tends to ask a lot of why does this work or what makes that go kind of question. And so actually th thinking on on her timeline, like by the time she will become a driver, is also two business cycles. So a fun thing to think about, you know, like what, what might, what might the automobile look like by the time she's driving and what engagement or relationship will she have with it? Um, beyond that, I do also read, a, I read a lot of history. That's just the sort of predilection. Uh, but it's also, it's, it's also, I think, very useful. And I read a lot of things about trade flows and about, information flows when I can find them. In particular, things that are, I mean, I know things that have just been published, but I also, at least on a skimming capability, read a lot of things that were at the leading edge several decades ago. I'm really interested in knowing what, what, what things did it, what things didn't stick the landing, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, so like a great example of that is a book called The Machine That Changed the World about, about the auto business as, as a sort of uh, multi-party initiative funded by the industry, the auto industry run out of MIT. And it's really very interesting to sort of see what kinds of things people were talking about. I also like to do a lot of, this is very basic, but I do a lot of kind of like very simple text analysis on big publications. How often how often are the International Energy Agency or uh, J P Morgan's chairpersons that are talking about X, you know, word counts per page and things like that are often interesting indicators of sort of zeitgeist more than anything. I wouldn't call that a particularly rigorous <laughs> analysis or particularly formalized, but it's just interesting to see what people are, what, what people are looking at. I think it's, you know, it, it's a healthy challenge to sort of continually want to be like, oh, that's important, or, ah, oh, that's the thing that we need to, you know, we need to dig in on right now. So, yeah, it's, that, that, that might sound a, a little bit random. I think for many people with a job like mine, it sort of becomes algorithmic over time, but I'm always trying to sort of, to sort of refresh it. Um, and especially holiday times, you know, a stack of books, 
uh, long walks and to sort of chance to think about to think about what's new. I think the extraordinary thing right now is how informationally dynamic everything is. Like how many, how much the sense of what is possible I think is changing, and it gives me a lot. It gives any of us a lot to try to keep up with. After the break, Matt and I continue the discussion with how the communication of information and insights is or isn't changing. We also explore his personal sustainability reflections and the one person he would like to read his work. Quick request, subscribe to The Net Zero Life wherever you get podcasts, give us a rating on Apple, favorite us on Spotify, or follow our socials at The Net Zero Life. We get deep into the weeds making these episodes and we love hearing what you think. Your perspective is new, refreshing, and always welcome. We are quickly going to run out of time. I'm just saying, I'm going to put these questions out here to hopefully okay. lower you back in for um, another time. Um, but, you know, we were talking about two relatable er- earlier um, and we we're talking about these insights and these predictions. And so this is a double question, mm-hmm. which is one, um, are, 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 are insights that you're delivering uh, changing in terms of the media? You talked about moving from a board, not reading, um, you know, the large report and moving to an email. But are we like, how is that different either for a board, for a consumer, for, um, you know, a business leader? Uh, and then second, how important is that those predictions are right? And like tying it back to Blade Runner, you know, Los Angeles 2019 does not look like Blade Runner, but is it okay? Well, I think that that's actually very, those are both good questions. So the first one, the inf- information, at least in the big corporate world, is amazingly consistent in terms of how it's delivered and what is delivered hmm. from when I began doing this work. And neutral state, neutral statement. People still read emails, and they often read emails that have been, in a good way, thoroughly processed and consolidated to convey information to them. They sit through presentations. Uh, they they uh, go, they, they convene at particular times and places to do things. That's thus the importance of the board meeting. And I think uh, in a good way, they, they have sort of frames of receptivity and it's important to kind of do that, like to match that, like, you know, it, it's, there's an impedance match that needs to happen, which is why one of the reasons I like going to like a board meeting is that that's a time set aside to be receptive to new information and to think deliberately about the future. So look, m- maybe this will all be happening in the metaverse in a couple of years, um, possibly, but the tool set is remarkably stable. I use email, Excel, PowerPoint as the creative tools, also Word as the, the my creative tools for, for creating insights at least at the point of delivery. That hasn't changed. Now, the informational demands um, in the, at the more operational levels of business are definitely moving in a more code-oriented way. People, I think, build so that machines can talk to machines, and that's both really fascinating and really important and a really good human challenge. So um, that's the one. Remind me, what's the second half of this so that I can get to that? It's, it's the Blade Runner 20, uh, 2019. How it's, so it's, is that the right? This is a great question. It's far less important that it was right than that you showed your work. Why did you think it was going to be true? Hmm. Like this is this is why I spent so much time reading reading um, the the strategy document of ten years ago or twenty years ago. What did people assume was going to be the case based on their best assumptions or their best knowledge about today? So you know, Blade Runner is a fantastic example of a sort of. Japanification assumption of sort of street level media and to some extent 
even language and culture, right, that was happening in the, in the 1980s. That's not to uh, Ridley Scott's uh, detraction, right? Like it's not his fault. Why did he think it was true? It was because of a set of reasons that we could look at. Why did we assume um, in, you know, in, 20, in 2008 and 2009, why did we assume that the lowest cost solar option for bulk power generation was going to be solar thermal. So technologies that use the steam, you know, a, a reflective field to generate steam and run a turbine. Well, because what we knew at the time were XYZ conditions that changed in the course of like six months. Well, when your priors change, then you should change your, your outlook as well. And so, you know, the really important thing is to understand and state why you believe something. It's also probably important to ask yourself more and more why it could not eventuate, why that might not end up happening, but also to be willing to discuss. I have really not encountered a lot of situations with the professional modeling, uh, like energy modeling community, wherein people are like, you got it really badly wrong and I'm never listening to you again. For the most part, people all understand and they're all we're all working to create a uh, a sense of the future based on our best understanding of today and what is possible. And so it's really very good to go back and revisit why those things changed. That's also, I'll throw in a quick interjection on that. It's why I think that high frequency, like my type of work once a week is actually very useful because you can, you can kind of iterate those views in real time, as opposed to just once a year with one big blast of a model. And this is like the the way that we can inspire, or not necessarily inspire, because people, sometimes they're paying you, often they're paying you, right? I get it for free, but um, executives pay you for the information, can then use that and iterate on it to make decisions that lead to a more, you know, climate-friendly or net-zero world. Yes. I mean, like, you know, use that as being like, hmm, so I have a better sense now of what is possible. Like, one of the things that I find that that is really useful at the at the executive level is simply a clear statement of where we are right now. So I'll give you a fun example. I'm going to ask you two questions. You can, you, you can give me the responses. What do you, what's your guess? And we'll use gigawatts here. What's your guess in gigawatts of how much solar we're going to install this year? I want to say 50 gigawatts. Okay. That's not a bad guess in a sense. It sounds like a big number, but it's actually going to be closer to probably 190 gigawatts, which is also... Um, multiple tens of percent more than the total, the, the highest record year of gas or coal installations ever. So it's it's the the present day is actually moving a lot faster than even somebody like you who's like well acquainted with this um, sees it because you're not doing that and looking at it as frequently as I am, my colleagues. My next one is this: What percentage of global automobile sales do you think? has a plug on it. So electric, pure electrics, plug-in hybrids, and the, I will say, show my hand here, the tiny, tiny number of fuel cell electric vehicles. What percent of, and on a quarterly basis of so the second quarter of, of this year, what percentage of car sales do you think were electric? Global? I should know because it definitely comes up through the, uh, the Bloomberg Green newsletter. I want to <laughs> say between one and 5% on a global scale. So it's actually, it's about 7.2%. And by the time we do this, we'll have third quarter numbers and it could be close to or above 10%. Like just simply showing that information to people 
And they're like, wow, I, had, I didn't know that. And I wasn't aware that, that, that where we are right now has already changed so much. Or the fact that we're more than, that globally more than 10% of electricity already is from wind and solar. Like these are things that people just don't really apprehend because it's not their day job to look at them necessarily. Yeah, and it's such a great point in terms of also just that like we are in the age of information and it's yeah. not about like is the the right information it's 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 sifting through yeah. all of the information out there and finding the right nuggets. And are you receptive to it? Like are you receptive yeah. to the information is a big part. That's why that that's why doing things like, you know, the the, the other part of my work is one great big presentation every year to just sort of like recap where we are right now. A statement of place, a positional a positional document is I think really, really important because that often doesn't happen and does pulled through from many different sources all at the same time in the same place. I wanna quickly move to um, BNF and, and, and really sure. actually talk about BNF pioneers for a second. Um, you know, we've heard multiple times in this podcast and in the pieces of work that I read that we need kind of game changing activities and we need more people, more shots on goal. Um, at the same time, there's, you know, there's BNF pioneers, there's the, um, activates new fellowship with Stripe and carbon 180 breakthrough energy has a fellowship as well. What are your thoughts on in terms of like, you know, one, are, are these adding value and how are they doing it? And two, is it kind of the same pool of people just applying to the different ones? So a good question. I don't. I, I can't say who's applying to all to, to all of the other ones because I don't know. My guess would be yes. I mean, if like companies that that tend to go out and apply for one of these things tend to apply for many of them. I think that they're very they're very helpful because they we're all attacking these things in different ways and in different places. Um, you know what, what would be any of the pioneers program is we we briefly for background we we have run this technology kind of competition, judging the top 10 things that were most important that year in decarbonization. We did something that I think is actually more akin to where the market is going is we went from the sort of positive, which is like, oh, let's look at everything out there and of the, of the things we got, let's take the 10 best to normative, which is like, we think that these are the things we need to solve for. So we need to now solve for round the clock, zero emissions power. We need to solve for long-term carbon removal, and we need to look at aviation. Like those are our challenges for 2022. So we've decided to sort of ring fence it around a couple of challenges. And we're very parametric about in terms of like what stage of development you are, how active you are and these sense of things. We want to know more information. So it's not really all that early stage. Um, you know, there's always the tension between how early do you go versus like, are you identifying companies that people already know that sort of thing? But no, I think, I think the more, the more, the better, as long as they, they are all additive, like it is, and I, this is entirely possible that eventually people are like, I, I cannot handle another, another competition, another set of fellowships or initiatives or engagements is just too much. But I, I don't, I don't think that we're there yet for any of them. I think these are all additive and insofar as they help move people's sense of what's possible it's all good. Let's jump into you um, okay. and kind of like the way you think about the little world a little bit um, and just kind of a few fun, quick questions. Yes, so, please. Um, first, what's one thing you've learned at BNF that has really touched you that you think might touch other people? And it kind of talks, talks about what we were speaking earlier in terms of, you know, information that's out there that people just don't have yet. I think it's that more, uh, more is possible more change, more positive change is possible than most people in an incumbent position will give you credit for. And that's not a criticism. It's not a shortcoming. It's not even necessarily a failing. It's just a thing that if you listen only to, if you only listen only to a kind of like all things being equal or business as usual 
lens on where we are today, it makes it very hard to think about what's changing. And so I tend to not do that too much. Um, I think the other, there's a related aspect of that, which is that I think it's actually really important to actually think about working backwards from where you want to be. Like, if you assume an end game, how do we get there? And this has been the biggest thing I think that has changed the most rapidly in what I do and what also other institutions, even companies are doing, which is rather than hand-wringing that we are way off course and are going to boil ourselves out of existence by the end of the century. That's like a 2010 narrative. We now have one that's like, well, we want to do this and we should do it. Let's assume that we can. And now we're going to fill that in. Like that is a massive cognitive change that I would hope more people would embrace. And I think actually a lot of people are. Some of them opportunistically, some of them because we have to do it, you know, we're doomed otherwise, whatever it might be. But th this ability to sort of work backwards from a, from a potentiality, I think is actually the thing that, that, that has stuck with me the most. Um, related to that is that things can change very fast. Things can move and change. Yeah, great. I love it. I mean, I'm a raging optimist most days, um, but I think this space is hard. Uh, and, and but but people don't. So I guess I can give a related to that, which is that investment is an inherently optimistic enterprise. If you want to invest, you have to believe a that it's possible, and b that it is positive, like that you see a return out of it. And, and in this case. Yeah, on multiple levels, you see multiple bottom bottom line different kinds of of positive that return from that. Mm. So you know you can you can only short so many things. Like if you want to be a cynic in the markets, uh, and I don't think necessarily that being you know short a particular thing is cynical. That could be just realistic. But you you can only be short so many things. Um, before you really need to be like, like, if you really believe you want to change, you have to build stuff. <laughs> you have to arrange and deploy capital and you have to develop and iterate technology. Yeah. And then Bloomberg opinion, whose name I'm blanking on, but on the regular Bloomberg side, not regular, but um, talks about that, like the most profitable short fund ever is like negative 1% year over year returns, right? I don't, uh, I don't remember that one, but it's, 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 that's a very, very hard business to do for one thing. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, you can get, you can get squeezed out by people who are optimistic or, yeah. you know, so that, that, that can make it very difficult. Um, a fun one for you, BART, MTR or Metro? Mm. Gotta go MTR here. MTR. I mean, for 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 the for the for the sake of of listeners, if you've not taken the really extraordinary, just like nervous system level uh, infrastructure that is the the MTR subway in Hong Kong, you should. Uh, it works. It's spotless. It's always on time. Um, it's had contactless payment since the late nineties. Um, it's. Also, it goes where you want it to go because MTR owns the air rights over its station. So if MTR goes somewhere and puts up a station, a city magically grows above it. Now, not every place can have can have uh, Hong Kong sort of boundedness and, and these rules governing it or a fair recovery ratio of like 100 multiples more money than it takes in from actual uh, from actual tickets. But it's marvelous uh, and just an example to the world. And in my all my years there, I, despite traveling constantly, I never missed a flight. 
if you could get to the MTR Airport Express downstairs from the International Finance Center, and if you got there by X time and had your ticket checked in, you were going to get to the airport on time. Your bags were going to get there, even though you checked them downtown. Uh, and you were going to walk on a train and then walk off a train in the airport. It was marvelous. So it's a hard thing, for, to compare, a tough one for BART or Metro really to keep up with. Yeah, people in New York are like shaking their heads. Like, what is that even like? Yeah, um, I know. <laughs> <laughs> if you could get one person to read uh, either, uh, you know, an email, a report you did, who would it be and which one, uh, uh, which piece? Okay. Um, this is a really tough question. And I don't know that I have, that I have an answer, um, mostly because I don't know who reads my work. Mm-hmm. I know volumetrically who does, but I don't know specifically. Um, who would I like to really read my work? Um, heads of state in Southeast Asia. How about that? Um, p- people for whom the, the opportunity, heads of state and like, uh, long-term family entrepreneurial families in Southeast Asia. I can't, I can't think of a particular one at the moment, but one for whom there's multi-generational timelines and the ability to like think big and invest and change the, the track of where they want to go. And the one I would probably want them to read would be a piece I wrote just looking at the capital expenditure ratio on electric vehicles uh, versus conventional uh, internal combustion engine vehicles for some of the world's biggest automakers. Because it's a, it's a good leading indicator on change. Like if you invest that stuff, you have to use it. Like auto capex is specific. <laughs> it's tooled for some particular kind of thing. So I, I think I think that that's what I would want. I would want somebody to be like, just just a simple, a simple essay and use that as a as a sort of an engagement for uh, for thinking more about the future. When you think of a net zero superhero, who comes to mind? Net zero superhero. I mean, the closest I can think of right now is probably, this is very, very wonky of me. It's probably Fatih Birol, um, the executive director of the International Energy Agency. Because the IEA, which has been chartered uh, out coming out of the first of the oil crises in the 70s, was purely around energy security for the rich world. And what Fatih has done is successively, in pretty short order, steered that towards first considering really deep decarbonization. Second, considering that the decarbonization pathways that we're on, that the more aggressive ones are probably more likely. And third, and most importantly, creating a scenario in which the world's most august and security-oriented institution in energy says, here's what it would look like to do this by the middle of the century. It's a sense why he was on... Like he was on one of the sort of, uh, I think he was on one of the person of the year covers uh, for Time Magazine. Like, I think that that was actually extraordinarily important for creating this sort of Damascene conversion moment for a lot of people to be like, well, if the IEA is talking about it, there must be something there. Or if the IEA is talking about it, does that mean I have to do it? Like it's changed, it changed very much what is sort of within the bounds of, of, of possible uh, and and perhaps in the bounds of, therefore, what is also probable over time. How should I, as the host of the Net Zero Life, think about sharing insights and actions and leaders, uh, actions, philosophies, and insights from leaders in climate like yourself to a broad audience in this, you know, in the parallel that 
you distill information and provide mm-hmm. that to decision makers. I want to be able to do that and distill it to people who are thinking about their everyday lives um, and, and how they can either make a change, make an impact, or really just be inspired and optimistic. Extract, you know, extract the most relatable and the most surprising things from these discussions. I would say put the two together, right? Like surprising and relatable is a great combination. Or also another way to put it, we uh, surprising and actionable. Uh, and and package those and 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 hit them pretty frequently. <laughs> get them, you know, get them out in a, in a packaged fashion. Um, you know, put put them on LinkedIn, tweet them if that's your thing, and just talk a lot. Uh, you know, you know, I think. I've been doing this and only this for 15 years. So for that matter, has my wife. She she works in the industry, actually in the industry as well. So for us, it's kind of like old hat. But um, you know, I have to remember that like it is of interest to other people. It's not just procedural, like on the margin change. And so men- mention to people um, who may not be aware of where we are, just where we are and where we could be going as well. Thank you. That's great. Surprising and relatable. Yeah. Pat. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time. Thank um, you. Thanks for having me. If people want to follow your work or get in touch with you, what's the best way to do that? Um, easiest, uh, I'm Nat Bullard on Twitter, so that's pretty easy. If you look me up on Bloomberg, there, are, there these days should be a subscribe button to get my work. That's probably the best place. Nat, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Nat for joining us today. You can follow Nat on Twitter at Nat Bullard, N-A-T-B-U-L-L-A-R-D. It's in the show notes. And or subscribe to his weekly column in Bloomberg Green called Sparklines, also in the show notes. Get in touch with me and the team via all of our social medias by following at the Net Zero Life. And if you prefer email, Nathan at the Net Zero Life works great too. As a reminder, everything I say is my own opinion and is in no way reflective of my employer. It's also not an investment advice. This episode was produced by Tony Levitt, the original music composed by Mitch Bernstein from Climb On. While I'd love to stay until next week, this is the last episode of season two. The team and I are taking a short break to build new content, work on our branding, and improve the listener experience. We plan to be back with new episodes in early 2022. In the meantime, thanks for listening. The team and I hope you're feeling a bit inspired to bring the world closer to net zero emissions. I'm Nathan Svee, and this is The Net Zero Life.